Welcome to Legville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Legville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Legville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today I'm going to be uh, talking with uh, Robert King. Uh, so, welcome, welcome. Thank you very much Robert. for inviting me. So, up. why don't you tell our listeners a little bit um, about yourself before we 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 have so much to talk about? <laughs> but uh, tell us <laughs> a little bit about yourself. Okay, so my my name is Rob King. I'm a lecturer at uh, University College Cork um, in the department. Uh, which actually, it's the School of Applied Psychology. I've been there for about seven years. Before that, uh, I was a maths teacher and a psychology teacher. And um, what do I do? I uh, main main thing I study. If you if you Google me, you'll find that the main stuff associated with me is studying fertility related aspects of female orgasm. Uh, but I don't just do sex. I also do violence as well. So those, those are the main. <laughs> so you're like. Quentin Tarantino, basically. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but without the good dialogue. Yeah, yeah, right. But, yeah. So, what? Uh, I mean, let's let's start off with the the female orgasm because you know that's a wonderful mm-hmm. place to start. You know, um, so oh, indeed, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, what uh, what is your research into the the female orgasm? Um, so this, this all started about 10 years ago. I read a uh, I read a book that um, set out uh, that there's this puzzle. Does female orgasm do anything? Uh, and if it does anything, what does it do? And uh, the book intrigued me. And I thought that uh, there was a, a possible solution to the puzzle. And I, I, uh, I spent a, a while kind of studying it. And I wrote off to a number of people who were leading people in the field, say, I think there's a possible solution to this puzzle. And one of them brought me in, a guy called Jay Belsky, who's quite well known in psychology. And he, he sort of said, well, it looks like you've got an idea here. We need to do some more biology. Uh, go off and, and learn a bit of biology. And I went off and did that for a while. Um, and at the end of a couple of years of that, I, I did a PhD with him. And that was the start of my academic career. He brought me in almost literally off the streets to study this, which I was very grateful. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. So what did you, what have you discovered? I mean, because I've, my, my personal take, I mean, I've been teaching a class for a number of years called Love and Friendship, and we deal with, with sexuality quite a bit. And my, my sort of, my take on, on what is that at some point in our evolutionary past, I think it's probably like a long time ago, like hundreds of thousands of years, if not millions of years ago, uh, sexuality is one of those things that has sort of um, sort of jumped the shark or escaped. The, it's it no longer is just a function of of just procreation. That it it serves right. all sorts of other 
important functions in our species in terms of bonding and yeah. creating intimate relations. So it seems to me like this is a, a disagreement I've had with Gad Sad, you know, like who, mm. um, uh, the sort of evolutionary psychologist who uh, wrote like the consuming instinct and stuff like that. For sure. him, every single question of sexuality comes down to procreation. And it just seems right. to me that that's, that's uh, I don't know. I mean, that, that, that's like saying that, uh, I don't know, every question of opposable thumbs comes down to being really good at climbing trees or something. It's like, I, sure. Yeah. So I mean, they, they, you, you, you raise a bunch of really interesting questions. Um, I suppose the first thing is to say, Jan, I, I agree with you completely. Um, we're not the only animals. That, uh, one of the questions I always get asked is, you know, do uh, other, other animals have sex for fun? And I sort of go, well, I always, I always try to, um, but we're, <laughs> but we're not alone. Um, no, we're there, really there, not. There are, yeah. there are, no, there are other animals. Uh, dolphins, for example, famously have sex face to face and not in the breeding season. Bonobos have sex face to face, not in the breeding season. Um, and they also have head, uh, homosexual pairings and not just, hom- there, there's, there's, there's lots of homosexual sex happening in nature, but there's also some preferential homosexual pairings that happen in nature. And uh, we do that. And that's clearly not directly for reproduction. And same, same is true of the organisms I just mentioned. Um, so there's that aspect. I mean, I think it's, it's easy to, in, in evolutionary biology, everything is cashed out in terms of reproduction. In in in, in the it's about differential re, uh, representation of genes in the next generation, but that doesn't mean that each and every act is itself a procreative act because there's lots and lots of things that can make your genes survive into the next generation. And you've just mentioned a whole load of them, you know, like pair bonding, uh, like friendship, um, like you know, um, all, all of the things that that make life worth living, really. So it's kind of, Freud, I mean, it's very unfashionable to mention Freud, but Freud was one of the first people to try and uh, try and explain this, try and explain this sort of Darwinian insight. And his brilliant idea, which I still think is a clever idea, was that everything was a kind of a cover for sex. That's what the whole of civilization was. It was a cover for having sex. Um, and we don't we don't think that anymore, but it's still a brilliant idea. Um, and, and that might be what Gad is meaning. I don't know. I mean, if, if he means that every single act is itself a sexual act, then that would be kind of getting a bit hyper Freudian, I suspect he probably doesn't mean that unless he's exaggerating or, or being mischievous. Yeah, well, I mean, I think Freud had, um, you know, in the same way that Kinsey was sort of doing his research with a pretty, he was stacking the deck with a certain kind of demographic. Like, for instance, he yeah. he he very much oversampled um, gay men, which, of course, gave him right. an overestimation. That's an interesting of, way of thinking. Yeah. Kids, he oversampled gay men. What a what a coy way of putting it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, I didn't think about that. Yeah, that is pretty good. Uh, but in the same way, you know, Freud was oversampling these very very uptight um, sure. bourgeois um, Jewish uh, people in Vienna who were very yeah. uptight, very understandably stressed out because of the huge rise of anti-Semitism in yeah, yeah. Uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and stuff like that. So, like, it, he was getting these incredibly neurotic people. And, of course, we now know that um, mm. a, a pretty significant chunk of the young women that he was um, counseling were being sexually abused. So he also like, was yes. getting... Right, so, yeah, I mean, like... His theories emerge, and of course, he's he's doing all this theorizing while completely fucked up on coke, like practically yeah. every day. For and you know, like if if you've done any coke, coke like affects your psychology in a, in certain ways. It makes you, um, 
very sort of I mean, reptile like brain. Yeah, it makes you very reptile brain. It almost makes you think like a sociopath, like you. So a lot of Freud's um, theories, you know, while brilliant, I mean, the guy was clearly a genius. Um, I, I always sort of look at Freud's theories as this is what happens when you are, you know, A, like coked up all the time, uh, and B, <laughs> you're talking to some really, really neurotic uh, yeah. messed up people and then you're de- you're deriving theories of all humanity based on your coked up oh, theories it. on you know <laughs> with these people right so it's um but yeah i mean i uh, he definitely he's he's onto something but so so what do you think based on the the research that you've done and the yeah. what do you think the the purpose i mean does it even need a purpose but the, the, what do you think the purpose of female orgasm is well, okay. So I uh, see so you brought up, uh, you brought up Freud. So in, in biology, we we divide things into how questions and why questions. So the the how questions are the sort of the mechanisms, the the um, uh, sort of the, the nuts and bolts and mechanics. The why questions are the the evolutionary questions. Uh, what are the uh, what are the evolutionary functions? Why did it evolve? And Freud's idea was then the the first thing that people notice is that men seem to orgasm really easily and women don't. Okay, and there's Freud thought the reason for that was basically women were psychologically broken, and you've just described that in detail, so mm-hmm. I don't need to go, go through why he thought those things. Um, but people might be slightly more surprised to realize that the dominant view in my field is not that, is that Freud was kind of half right, uh, that not that women were, were psychologically broken, just they were badly designed in the first place. Now that, I, I, I just want to, I don't, uh, I, I don't think this is true. Uh, that, was, that was when I came to the puzzle and I saw that those were the sort of the dominant um, themes i thought well there, there is a there is another possibility and the possibility is that um it's it's difficult for women to orgasm because it's meant to be um they're not easy they're not easy in any other way you know, there's there's nothing about female sexuality that is anything other than a moving target for men and it's me- it's meant to be like that because what what women carry is a lot more valuable than what men carry so they they are making men work for it you know that's part that's part of its charm it's not meant to be simple and straightforward um, it's meant to be more difficult and it's meant to be more challenging, you know, and that's, that, that is one of the insights that evolutionary biology brings. And it's the difference between an obligate, uh, adaptation and a facultative adaptation. A facultative adaptation is one that adjusts itself to the, to the circumstances. And so uh, a t- typical example would be something like, um, but actually, no, let's, let's just, no, let's, let's not make it more, more puzzling. Just stick with, with orgasms. Um, it, the, the stuff that we study are the, the, the kinds of features of partners, um, behavioral and personal and all kinds of other things that make their partners uh, more likely to orgasm. And there's a bunch of stuff that evolutionary biologists study. I mean, we're in, you know, we study whether they're masculine, we study whether they're dominant in behavior, we study whether they're rich, whether they're muscular. Um, but you might be interested, what, what, is, what is the best predictor of female orgasm in the partner? Would you like to guess? Uh, my guess would be, um, hmm, uh, if in a heterosexual partner, homosexual partner, partner. Uh, uh, we're talking about heterosexual partner, heterosexual yeah. partner, and, and, and also a heterosexual during, partner. Uh, I would say that the biggest predictor would be um, that he is circumcised. Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, we've never found that. What, what, what the, 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 the thing that was the strongest predictor in our research, and we, we think we're the first people to find this, is attractive partner smell. Oh, wow. And that's really, and that's really interesting. So women literally smell, get off on smell, on good smell. Yeah. And, and, when, and whenever I give talks about this, um, the, the women tend to sort of nod and go, well, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? And the men sort of go, huh. 
Uh, no, we didn't know that. Um, and women, have, women have got a better sense of smell than men. Uh, their olfactory um, bulb in the in the brain has has forty percent greater neural density, and that's expensive real estate in there. You don't have that for nothing. And it's so it's then, doing why are they? Okay, just just a random question. Why are the yeah. vast majority? I mean, here in in, uh, in Quebec and stuff like that, and in France, I saw the same thing. Why are the vast majority of wine tasters uh, uh, men? If women have... That's an interesting question. Um, there's, there could be a bunch of reasons for it. I mean, uh, and I, I might be going off my field here, but my, my first thought is is possibly that wine tasting is total bullshit. Um, and that what they do <laughs> is, 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 is they're just pulling the bull over somebody's eyes. I mean, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not just fucking that from nowhere. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they're, they're, no, I, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. I, I've actually, I've seen like up close in front of me a, a kind of a Pepsi Pepsi challenge where they like blindfolded them, and they had yep. these uh, these wine testers from you know here in Quebec, and they blind yeah. tested and they gave them different kinds of wines and they asked them uh-huh. what it was, and um, they were they were all like I don't say you know fifty percent of them or eighty percent one hundred percent of them could yeah. tell exactly what the wine was. With okay. a blindfold. However, that doesn't mean you're wrong. I think you're. I think you're actually ninety yeah. percent right, because numerous studies have shown that people who are not wine testers, uh, even who, who people who can, you know, sort of laymen, right, who consider themselves foodies, uh, yeah. you blindfold them and they don't know jack shit. They can't tell the difference between like a ten dollar bottle of wine and right. a two hundred dollar bottle of wine. So yes, it is. Almost completely, uh, just just marketing and and spin. Uh, so you're yeah. right. Uh, however, <laughs> my I'm just curious. Why is it that? Because I didn't know that that women have forty percent more. Uh, yeah, I'm wondering why it's not all women. Um, well, um, it, it could just be that women don't put themselves forward into those kind of competitions. There's another possibility, which is that we're, we're talking about averages in, in, in brain volume. And in a lot of areas, male variance is greater than female variance. So pretty much everything we track psychometrically and physically, um, men occupy the outer. Yeah. Um, more geniuses, street. more idiots. Yeah. Yeah. Or as, um, Helena Cronin used to put it more Nobels, more dumbbells. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it could just be, and once again, I'm just I'm speculating here. It could just be that what we're talking about is is a very small sample at the end of it. You know, for for example, I mean, there is there's I think there's some good evidence that that women on average have a slightly faster reflex speed than men. But all the all the uh, all the racing car drivers, bar a couple, are are men, and it could just be that they just occupy that end of the tail, you know, of those uh, that particular skill set. It's not particularly that men on average are better at, at this kind of thing. It's just that the, the people who are the best at it happen to be men. Does that make sense statistically? Sure, sure, yeah. Hey, it, think, just seems, it just often, seems odd. It's uh, surprising, but uh, yeah. So, so you think it is. It's first of all, it's female orgasm is difficult because it's supposed to be. So it's like a skill testing question. It's, yeah. it's supposed to and, and separate and, and, and the wheat, bunch, wheat from the chaff. Uh, yeah. And there's a bunch of things that are being tested for. I mean, I don't think it's I don't think it's any accident that humans are erotic creatures. For example, I don't think it's any accident that humans seduce each other, um, that they spend time with each other, that they spend post coital time with each other. All these kinds of things. These are the. You know, it's not just about 
if, if, if all that if all that sex was 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 orgasming, we wouldn't go to the trouble and expense uh, of finding partners. We just you know stay inside and masturbate. Yeah. Um, and um, we we do we go to all this kind of trouble partly because all those other things are enjoyable as well. And nature doesn't give free lunches; it makes all those things enjoyable because they matter. You know, in the same way, babies are cute because if they weren't cute, we wouldn't take care of them. Things are sweet because we need that kind of food. Um, you know, all that. Stuff. Uh, there's interesting theory that things are funny because it's a, a kind of a mental filing mechanism. That's what's one of Dennett's latest ideas, which is an interesting. <laughs> that's so funny. I mean, because a, a funny thing is. Uh, very often something that is out of pattern, right? Yeah. Something that's weird, something that's like, yes. that's uh, extraordinary in some ways. So you should probably take note of it, right? That yes. actually, that's, that just, you know, right on, on its face makes a certain amount of sense. That's, uh, well, his, his, idea, his idea is that there's, there's certain kinds of ambivalence built into the way that we file things. And so we need to be alert for those kinds of ambivalences and, and filing is a tedious job. So uh, alerting ourselves to those kinds of possible ambivalences and making them enjoyable. So we actually seek them out. He thinks that's the kind of, that's the crack in nature that, that then got the adaptive advantage. <laughs> but I think, I think, but I, I, I would caution against being too reductive about this stuff because a lot of this stuff is a, it's about the scale you're looking at it. You know, n- none, of, none of this is going to tell us much about – I think people get themselves in real tangles with things like morality, for example. They, they look at sort of Hamilton's rule about morality and about how altruism can enter in, and then they start getting themselves hung up on, on whether or not that gives us any kind of clues as to how we should live. And I think it gives us almost none. <laughs> I have to say, frankly, I, I don't think studying biology is a, is a very good way of, uh, uh, of learning how to, how to you know, live a good life. Um, I think studying a bit of biology might help you with your sex life a bit um, because one of the things it might do is lead you to believe that you should probably be much more open with your partner about or partners about what you like, what you don't like, uh, not faking things. I mean, if you if, yeah. if, if fake orgasms with partners then the men will go all right that's what she likes and they do it for perfectly good reasons on approximate level you know i want him to feel good or i want him to stop doing what he's doing or whatever because then they're setting themselves up for the guy thinking that that's what they like and they'll get more of the same because men in general want to please women i mean there are exceptions but stay away from those guys Mm -hmm. um if you're not giving them good reinforcement and feedback then they're not going to learn are they so i I remember i remember one of my good friends once she was she was dating this guy she's actually married to him now but uh, yeah. she said, uh, you know, because, oh, my God. And it's funny because of what she just said about the smell. She's like, oh, my God, I'm dating this guy. He's so fucking hot. He's like, he smells good. He's so sexy. Yeah. I love him. But, oh, my God, is he terrible in bed? And she goes, right. I just, she goes, I want to just go back and and to all of his ex-girlfriends and just slap them in the fucking face. <laughs> like, because clearly they have told him that this was good. Like they have like yeah. faked it. They have told. So I, I just have to basically rebuild him from the ground up. Mm-hmm. This is like mm-hmm. a, this is one of those like houses where, you know, renovations are not going to do. I just have to take the whole <laughs> thing down, rebuild it from the foundation up. I have to teach him everything. And she goes, you know, this guy's, you know, he's 35 years old. Like he should, you know, <laughs> he should know by now. And if he doesn't know by now, and he's had long-term relationships, and he's a decent guy. Um, yeah, it's because they just didn't tell him. They didn't yeah. tell him. He's. She goes. I feel like uh, you know. I'm dating the emperor with no clothes. Like, <laughs> like I'm just. But he's. You know. It's interesting. You, you said that she. She said that he smelled good, and that yes. that was. That yeah. Was, he, 
it was um, I think Jennifer Aniston said, "There's no better smell than the guy you love," um, and this is a it's a common experience with women. If uh, that, that that is one of the key things, and it's interesting. She she was you know there there are, there are cultures where they they teach the guys. Um, I think it's the Doro. And don't quote me on this because I need to look it up. It's one of the Polynesian groups where when the uh, the guys are about 15 or 16, they are taken off by an old woman, someone in her 30s, uh, who show them you know, all the all the sort of the basics, all the basic mechanics. And they're not allowed to have sex with girls of their own age until they've demonstrated. Are you their sure mark. this is not like a teenage boy fantasy no. that, no, that she, was she, made its way into the anthropological? Because this sounds like a masturbatory yeah. fantasy that made it into the literature somehow. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> By the example, um, they, yeah, the, uh, the the guys. Well, except I mean, this particular group, um, they also do things like they they do they do incisions into the penis and they insert bits of stone in. Oh, I've heard about this. I thought I thought they inserted sticks, um, make I, them more I, hard. I, I mean. Well, no, the, 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 you, you, you put you. I'm, I'm, I'm I don't know why I'm demonstrating this. I'm not on video. <laughs> but they, put, they, 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 put, they put incisions down the side when the okay. penis is flat. And then they, they insert little bits of stone into the cut and they let the cut seal up. Um, uh, so that, that gives it a, a more of a rough texture. Presumably. Oh, my God. Ribbed for your pleasure. Yeah. So, yeah, That's... absolutely. absolutely <laughs> ribbed for her pleasure. Permanently ribbed for her. On hope. That is awesome. <laughs> so you've got little yeah. bumps to add more kind of friction. And to, yeah. that's, oh, that's wild. That's wild. Yeah. So, and this is all done by a woman in her thirties schooling these teenagers. In yeah, a, yeah. Um, I think that's um, that's uh, it's a very good idea. Uh, I think uh, <laughs> it breaks I numerous mean, laws. You know, like well, with, um, I mean, maybe you should you know, raise the age a bit. Um, but it, uh, um, I, I, I mean, I don't know how graphic you want me to get on on your on your podcast. Yeah, I mean, um, I know you know. I gotta say, at eighteen. I had yeah. I had a, a girlfriend for a little while, for about uh, six months when I was eighteen, who was forty, yeah. and right. yeah. she, oh my god, <laughs> she yeah. stepped up she, my fucking game. She oh my she god, she taught me. She taught me. She was like, no, 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 no. Yeah. slow down, curves, circles, yeah. circles. She she really yeah. kind of taught me what's what, you know, like. Uh, and this. This was another thing we found with our research that women tend to get more orgasmic as they get older. And um, we're not quite sure why this is, but we suspect one of the reasons and it's like, be an interesting thing to study is that they know what they want more. And also they're, they're more open about what they want. Yeah. They're like you know, the girlfriend you just mentioned, they're much more happy to go. No, 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 not that. Not like that. Like, that. <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> uh, which, which, you know, once again is, is something men could do well to pay attention to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the, so the purpose is it's supposed to be difficult um, it gets better with age, so why would why would evolution create such a thing? Oh well, because what women is, uh, is women are carrying is, is comparatively um, valuable compared to what men are carrying. So it's not surprising that there are various kinds of test beds that that where, where the women are getting them into to jump through the hoops for them. Um, I just think that this is this is one of them, um, and we've got independent reasons for thinking that uh, orgasm during sex increases fertility for women. We've got a um, we've got some direct studies that we're doing. Uh, we've got some indirect studies that we're doing. We've got some physiological stuff that fits with it, uh, and we're just gradually building up a picture. How much detail do you want me to go into? <laughs> go, hey, if you're talking about female orgasm, go on for hours, yeah. brother. Go on for hours. Okay. We want to hear it. Okay, so, so um, the Masters and Johnson are the big figures in America, and they were very good at um, uh, uh, 
doing sex research uh, against a sort of backdrop of people who, who didn't want them to. But they, 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 all their research boiled down to measuring um, half a dozen women masturbating and then sticking a... a um, a thing called Ulysses, which is a camera with a uh, with a, a glass tube inside the women, and then just seeing if anything happened. And they didn't find anything. Now, um, at the same time this research is going on in America, there was a team uh, of the foxes, a husband and wife team, both doctors, and they had a much more uh, ecologically valid mechanism where they, they got a, a, a telemetry device, which they inserted into Dr. Fox Mrs., and they had sex on the marital bed, and they measured pressure changes. Um, and they measured some quite considerable pressure changes, many of which have been sort of uh, misunderstood and sort of glossed over by subsequent researchers. But they started off a line of research. And going into the 90s, there was a team of Viltz and Zerva. Oh, I've got an aeroplane flying over. You can, can you hear me through that? Yes, I can. Okay, so there's a team of uh, Vilt and Zerva Manalakis who, who looked at the effects of oxytocin. We know that oxytocin is produced by orgasm. And if you give oh, women yeah. oxytocin. Big time. Um, it's, uh, it, is, oh, sorry, are you talking about the airplane or the, no, I'm talking about the oxytocin. You, you're, you're just, your brain is flooded with oxytocin when you orgasm. Yeah. Male but also, yeah. Uh, yeah. And it, but it, it also creates, um, upflow of, uh, of, of fluid to the, uh, to the dominant ovary. So that's a, a line of research. And then you sort of move it up into the, the current age, and we we built on the back of that, and we um, came up with a method of inserting a sperm stimulant into women, creating orgasm through deep tissue tissue stimulation, and then measuring the amount of flow back, um, some somewhere between ten minutes and an hour after uh, after sex, uh, mammals expel um, a, an amount of material in in the vagina, and uh, you you uh, you. Uh, we can measure how much is coming out and if the woman's had an orgasm uh, about 15 or 20 percent less uh, comes out oh wow and that's kind of, some more is retained yeah, that's, yeah so that's 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 what we measured in our 20 uh, 2016 study um and that's kind of interesting because uh, a couple of months ago uh, um a journalist phoned me up and, and said, um, it's really interesting, your, your 2016 paper. You know that there's a, a fertility clinic that I work with over in the Czech Republic that's found a 20% increase in, in fertility in persistently infertile couples when the, when the woman is orgasming. Now, the, the two 20% there shouldn't be considered the same. A 20% difference in sperm retention is not the same as a 20% increase in fertility. That's just a pleasing coincidence. Yeah. But it was just kind of it was just it's just interesting uh, that um, that some fertility clinics are also stressing the importance of orgasm uh, for couples who are persistently infertile, and I and I suspect that you know that's going to be another line of research for us coming up. We're quite excited about that because we think that's one of the things that's missing. Uh, it's one of the missing pieces of the puzzle uh, is that particularly when couples are very stressed, uh, very anxious, um, they're thinking about babies all the time. They're specifically not doing the kind of erotic, sensual things that they 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 love doing with each other they're doing a whole bunch of other things and that might be affecting their fertility yeah well i you know the i'm sure you've heard right that the um the female's clitoris sort of grows mm. in size throughout yeah. the life course and so it's it's much bigger you know by the time you're like 50 it's 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 bigger than it was at 40 at 40 it's yeah. bigger than 30 30 bigger than 20 um so um, and it's bigger than people Anyway, it's not because it's most of it's internal. Yeah, uh, but the, but the question is is if it's constantly growing and if women are more orgasm more easily over time, then this is obviously passing over menopause, right? So, right. like, it seems to me that whatever's going on with orgasm, I don't know. I I, I just I'm confused about that because. 
it seems like well if if the purpose is that it um it makes you more fertile or it it yeah. you know it it kind of it's a skill testing question you got to jump through hoops so you get a more kind of persistent and devoted male who might also be a better partner um then why is all this stuff continuing decades after menopause yeah i have to say i didn't know about clitorises getting bigger all the way through life that's that's intriguing i have to go and look that up yeah um i um i suspect if it's true it might be like ears growing or noses growing it might just be one of those things where it's not growing for any functional purpose it's just just happens to be that's the way that kind of tissue goes but i don't know i uh, that's news to me i have to go and check yeah. but as, as sort of sex uh, as it's getting better at it i think um we maybe we just got lucky that way uh, i mean for, for, for one thing um it, it doesn't have to be an either or thing uh, it we, we, we one of the things we're clearly doing is we, there's no culture which doesn't have pair bonding i mean people get themselves very hung up on whether we're naturally monogamous or naturally non-monogamous or whatever um it's clearly part of our we've got a whole raft of Things that look like adaptations, like jealousy, for example, um, like commitments, uh, which means that we've got, certainly got inclinations that way. However, we've also got a whole load of social structures, like, for example, making it making it difficult to uh, break up if you've got married, or you know, having sanctions for people who have affairs. That mean that we're not perfect at it. So it looks like we've got mixed sexual strategies, but we certainly seem to be very capable of pair. And that's definitely a thing we do. And that goes on past uh, re uh, reproduction because grandparents invest in, in their offspring as well. So one of the things that happens with menopause is that um, grandparents stop reproducing themselves, but they start um, being particularly uh, investing in the in the sort of generation that's, that's one, one below uh, their own offspring. And maybe pair bonding helps with that. I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know if anyone's tested it. But it, it's certainly people don't seem to give up sex just because they, they get older. I mean, I remember seeing this this old lady. Um, she was in her 80s. I'd be, be careful in case my mum listens to this. So 80 <laughs> not old. 80 not old. 80, 80, 80 still very young. Um, but she she was eighty odd and she was being interviewed and uh, and um, someone was talking over so what you know, what's what's your sex life like and she said well it, it takes all day but fortunately these days I've got all day you know, so <laughs> <laughs> I remember a buddy of mine was uh, was a plumber and um, he he actually he died a few years ago it's kind of sad but uh, but anyway but he was a, a plumber and uh, in the working class neighborhood that I grew up in. And uh, he, you, you were a boxer, right? He, back um, in the day, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm yeah. Hey, anyway, he was a boxer too. But anyway, but he, I remember <laughs> there was a couple of like apartment buildings that went up right by the St. Lawrence River in Verdun, and they were old folks' homes, right, and uh, retirement communities. And he was called, <laughs> he was called in all the time yeah. to to deal with their their drain which dumped out into the river and it was constantly right. get, getting clogged up by all the condoms that they were using <laughs> <laughs> and oh, it was dear. just like and he was like i can't believe how much sex these old people are having and i don't ah. know why they're using condoms at this point well, yeah you know there's an extra they're all like kind of decades past menopause, but they... How many STDs do they have? Well, that is actually a problem. There is a rise of STDs in old people's homes, isn't there? No. Really? Yeah, there's, 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 yeah, and I think, I mean, there's a bunch of things. I mean, it's, as you get a bit older, your frontal lobes start going a bit, so your inhibitions are going. Um, and now with the with the rise, so to speak, of Viagra, you know, I guess that um, <laughs> some, 
some guys must 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 think you know their all their teenage dreams have come true because they 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 a lot of the guys the, the operational sex ratios have changed enormously, haven't they? Suddenly there's there's several women for every guy. Yeah, um, two <laughs> girls for every boy. <laughs> what was that like Beach Boys song? We like, yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I think. Some old, some some old guys and old people. There was a, there's a guy in my uh, my mum isn't in a once again my mum's listening. I have to be very careful here. She's not in an old people's home. She's in some sheltered accommodation, which is uh, something where you've got sort of retirees all living together, but a sort of communal arrangement. Um, so they're kind of looking out for each other, which is kind of nice. But there was there was one guy in there, um, this Jamaican fella who's left now. But um, he was uh, uh, he was having sex with at least three of the women in the block at once. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and and he and he and he was trying it on with my mum, uh, which is which is why I sort of just uh, just uh, yeah uh, why I learned about it. Um, so he was he was definitely having the time of his life. He was well, he was in his late seventies uh, at that point. <laughs> Player, yeah. So yeah, <laughs> that was his, that was his thing. Well, yeah. I mean, I I'm not, uh, but with with old people, definitely seems to be even there. Right, you're seeing yeah. you're seeing sort of a demonstration, maybe, of what human sexuality is mostly about. Because these are people that, you know, it's not it's not going to form. Uh, there's not going to be any children. There's not going to be, but yet it's still this really important way of bonding with other people. It's uh, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're we're highly highly sexed apes, no question. Um, and um, yeah, I've been I've been and, asking and all people... of my I've been asking all of my guests this uh, for the last like couple months because I'm I'm well I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with this question and you seem mm-hmm. like a a rather perfect person to ask this. What do you make yeah. of the sex recession that is happening happening right now? Like you have <coughs> uh, play you know probably the the most extreme case right now in the world would be Japan. Where yeah, yeah. I mean, the percentages are unbelievable. It's like fifty percent of Japanese men um, are virgins at age thirty now. Uh, the right. like most most like people are not getting married there anymore. Yeah. And you know, your whole thing like you know, well, why not just stay home and masturbate? Well, a lot of them are yeah. doing that. They're just staying yeah. home and masturbating. They're, they have the the doll industry is like a multi. A multi-million yes. dollar, all, close to billion dollar industry, um, mm-hmm. and so people really are just staying home and and you know masturbating or just like just opting out of relationships completely, right? And the yeah. uh, the new kind of the Generation Z, as they're called, um, the uh, generation that has grown up uh, with with the internet and all that stuff, like they are having the least amount of sex of any generation since they started collecting research on this in the 1920s. Like they're right. having less sex than our great grandparents were having. Right. Yes. So what do you think, what do you think is going on with that? Yeah. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, have you had Jeff Miller on the show? Not yeah. yet. He's, well, he's like, uh, we keep sort of, not having the right time. He, he's definitely going to be on the show. <laughs> All right. Okay, well, um, I, I mean, I don't want to steal his thunder too much, but I, the, the thing I'm about to say, I, I owe a great, I mean, I grow a great, a great deal to Jeff anyway. Um, you know, as, as should be obvious, he was, uh, his book, The Mating Mind, is one of the ones that kind of 
it's one of the ones when you start getting into evolutionary theory his, his book is one of the first that you pick up and you go oh my god the world is so much more interesting why no one told me this so I'm, <laughs> I, I apologize in advance for stealing any of jeff's thunder here because i owe a lot to steal away um, <laughs> yeah. it's uh, there's, there's a thing called the fermi paradox are you familiar with this um it, well i am but our listeners may not be so please lay it right, out so- so the, the Fermi paradox is, is um, uh, unless there's some, but why is it that we don't see aliens? Um, now, there's various solutions. I mean, it could be that the government, we'd have seen aliens, the government's covering it up. I mean, I don't think our governments, our governments could cover up uh, anything. Very, <laughs> I mean, I think they're, 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 they're incompetent rather than conspiratorial for the most part. So I don't buy that story. It could just be the university is so big um, that we just can't see them. And that's possible. Uh, or it could just be that they're hiding from us in some way. But there's another possibility. And the possibility um, is, is this. When, when species get to a particular kind of stage of development, they can satisfy all their evolved urges without actually having to do the things that they, they were evolved to do. So you mentioned cocaine. I mean, how does, what does cocaine do? It, it basically... It, it, it short circuits the um, the dopaminergic circuits of the frontal convexity, the, the reward centers, basically. And it tells you you're great without you ever having to actually achieve anything. Um, <laughs> so people, true. Yeah, sitting there stuffing, stuffing up their nose, feeling, oh, I'm wonderful, I'm fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, you think but every you're joke you're saying is so funny, yeah. every comment is so insightful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it just it just circumvents it. Um and there's a, there's another yeah there's another bunch of things we can do. Yeah, we, we we give ourselves a reward for fat and sugar, which would normally have been hard work to get out go out and get. And now I can just go out and buy a Mars bar or something, and it, you know I don't have to get honey from a dangerous hive, you know, or anything yeah. or hunt. So um, it gets easier and easier to satisfy those evolved urges. Well, um, Jeff's idea is at a certain certain stage you can sort of satisfy your evolved sexual urges, which are quite complicated, difficult, and they're sometimes risky. You know, you can come you come across a, someone else's jealous partner. You can get a disease. Uh, you get rejected. You know, there's all those kind of things. So instead of doing that, you know, you, you 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 can satisfy those urges with things like sex dolls or masturbatory toys. And that's 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 that was one of his suggestions for the solution of the Fermi paradox. The aliens are all indoors wanking, basically, and that's why we don't see them um and that could be that could be uh the way we're going you know the you you mentioned japan japan is the first country where the sale of adult diapers uh now uh, outstrips the sale of children's nappies uh, which is of a that's the first time that's happened you know and they are they they're getting an aging population and that aging population is often they're being abandoned and they're not being replaced and maybe we're going that way you know, it's not impossible. Um, if we're going to draw ourselves back from that, maybe a little bit of sort of sex ed on along the lines of how to make each other happy might be a way of pulling ourselves back from the brink. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the stuff that I've read on the sex recession is is even more intense than just uh, sort of fear of commitment and the fact that you mm. can stay home and sort of as it order takeout, as it were, rather than like, yeah. you know, making your own meal. Um, the apparently they they also seem to the younger generation they also seem to have lower uh testosterone rates like in men and right. women right and of course yeah. testosterone is responsible for sex drive in men and women and it looks yeah. like men and women are having less so even after they start having sex they have less of it right yeah. so i i'm just i i'm kind of you know mystified by this it's uh I, I don't know what, you know, what's going on. 
there is, it's it's not impossible that we we put a lot of hormones into into the food supply and the water supply, don't we? Uh, this is out outside of my field, so I'm yeah. I, uh, that's one of the theories. That's one of the theories is that it's the hormones we put. I, another theory I've heard is um, that that's a food based one is that you have more and more people consuming soy products, and soy, oh, right, yeah. soy products like for instance the. Um, um, most recently we've had, I don't know if you have it in the UK yet, but here in North America, we have this thing called like, uh, it's like almost meat or something like that. It's, uh, they have it in a lot of fast food places and you, you make a burger out of this stuff. There's no meat in it. It tastes yeah. so close to a burger that right. it's hard to tell the difference. Right. And right. it's been a, it's been a big hit here. It's selling very, very well. Um, but there's been some studies that have been coming out now that saying that if you consume that kind of soy isolated soy protein, which you find in uh, tempeh, uh, tofu, and soy yep. products, it can within just two or three weeks cause a fifty percent drop in wow. testosterone rates. Like wow, really? So it it can like drastically reduce your sex drive. It can yeah. lead to like less motivation, more depression, yeah. uh, more obesity, uh, sleeping problems. Yeah. You know all of those things, right? So, I mean, that's that's another theory as to you know what's going on. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I just it no, it's out, it's outside my field as well. I mean, yeah, it, it sounds it sounds horrifying if that's true. Uh, we should yeah. we should be very worried. yeah. Well, my 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 son is my younger son and my sixteen year old is vegetarian, and as soon as I heard about this. Um, I, I told him about it and he started eating, uh, salmon and fish the next day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He was like, Oh, that's not cool. <laughs> like he was just like, not, he was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not choosing that option. So, right. uh, he, he switched, right? So I, you know, this, another thing I wanted to talk to you about is something that we've yep. we've been friends um, in in social media land for a number of years now, and uh, yeah. we tend to sort of get on similar sides of a lot of a lot of uh, arguments on the score. But um, you also like a lot of my friends, and to some extent me, but not nearly as much as uh, some of my friends. You've had uh, a lot of sort of run-ins with with um, Anthropology. I mean, not all anthropologists, yeah. but uh, with a certain kind of anthropologist who believes that um, that we're basically just really nice. And um, yeah. so, maybe you could sort of tell our listeners about what what's going on with that, and what's you know what's the deal. Well, we are nice. We 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 yeah. I do a I do a module every year about you know um uh, are, are human beings basically nice or basically nasty, and and the answer is we're basically both. Um, but there's there, there, there's there's a thing that um do, do you know um uh, cochran the guy who wrote the Ten Thousand year explosion no there's a there's a great book by cochran and harpending called the Ten Thousand year explosion and, and greg cochran refers uh, he has he refers to what he calls slightly unkindly the kumbaya school of anthropology um <laughs> and he's being, he's being a little bit mean but he's he's a bit he, he's I, you know, I have a lot of respect for him but he can be a bit mean but i think I, I think that sometimes people, for what seem like very good reasons, 
at the time want to suggest that what is natural is good and also the corollary that what is is what is good is natural and so once you start suggesting that maybe violence is is a perfectly natural predisposition let's 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 forget um let's forget violence for a second because that that immediately gets people's hackles rising how about nepotism you know nepotism is very natural we we favor our children we favor our families very and there are some people who deny that but most people probably wouldn't um but because we know that humans generally do that we build in mechanisms to well (laughs) they don't always work but you know mechanisms that are meant to go you're not meant to appoint your children to cabinet positions or you know you're not meant to be on uh, interview boards for for you know a family member and stuff like that because we understand that it's a it's um uh it's a bias that humans have and we also understand that humans steal things we understand that humans can be violent and so we build in these kind of mechanisms to stop it happening that there's another school of thought that says no no we don't have any dispositions that way humans have no dispositions in that respect at all if you just removed all social structure then humans would sort of naturally and that's why greg calls it the kumbaya school they would sort of naturally be skipping and happily through the fields with their ha- hand in hand um and uh, there'd no be there'd be no violence uh, or jealousy or anything else now the curious thing about the people who believe this is that they get extremely violent and angry with you if you suggest that they're wrong yeah um i mean I mean, it's it's not like, you know, they, they sort of prove their point by hugging you and kissing you and going, oh, that's brilliant. Uh, I, I, I love the diversity of our opinions. Um, let's let's all sit down and have a drink together. They, they get really quite someone can get very aggressive. And you, there are some people. Uh, who come after young researchers and threaten their careers? And I, at this point, I'm not joking because at this point, you know, I don't. Think no, that's you're all. you're not joking at all. Like yeah, Sam um, Harris, um, Sam Harris had Jared Diamond on his podcast a few weeks ago, and Jared yeah. Diamond, um, inter- he, he interviewed him at his home in L.A., oh. and he passed by uh, two security guards on the yeah. way into Jared Diamond's house, and Jared Diamond said, "You know, those security guards." They're not yeah. there protecting me from, uh, you know, the criminal element in the neighborhood, or protecting me from, you know, white nationalists or jihadists. Right. Those security guards are there protecting me from anthropologists. I've had Bloody death yeah. threats. I've had yeah. death threats. Listen to his podcast. He said I've had yeah. numerous death threats. I've had to put restraining orders on people who have PhDs in anthropology. Wow, like, that is and- insane. And these yeah. are people who say that they are, you know, humans are peaceful and they don't yeah. <laughs> like, they don't like things that he said. And so they have actually uh, uttered death threats against him. Like, <laughs> that's, that's all. I think that we might, uh, our irony meters might have broken at that point. Yes, I I was, yes mine's point, broken. Mine's broken time. completely after that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I've, I've, Sorry, go on. Yeah, no, I, I just, uh, just I agreeing with you. I mean, it's a very, yeah. it's a very bizarre thing that uh, these people who are so sure, they were. I mean, like, like for instance, okay, the the last guest that we had on was uh, sort of an intellectual hero of mine from when I was a, a young guy, uh, Frank Chalk, and he's a genocide scholar. And yeah. he, one of the things he said on the on the the episode was he said humans are not only naturally violent, they are naturally racist, right? Humans have a natural propensity towards preferring um, other other humans that look like them or look like their kin. And so he said, in the same way that we spend a a huge amount of time educating young children to not be violent, we need to look at the problem of racism in the same way. We need to spend a lot of time 
um, when kids are young, teaching them about that that seeing difference is completely normal, but that mm-hmm. uh, you know you shouldn't make too much of it, right? Like that it's not a big it's not a big. I got I I lost count at this point. I've received dozens of angry messages from really? people after that episode saying that uh, you shouldn't try and naturalize racism. That racism is just something that kids are taught by bigoted racist parents. And if we can yeah. just get rid of those bigoted racist parents and those yeah. and, and a racist culture. Maybe we, should, maybe we should put them in camps and gas them. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> like if, if we can somehow get rid of all the racists, then yeah. automatically kids are, you know, it's totally Jean-Jacques Rousseau, you know, like in me, like that, you know, all things leave the hands of the creator perfect, but degenerate yeah. in the hands of men, right? That, yes. that everything, they, kids all start off perfect. You know, kumbaya, la, 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 they're all perfect. And then they get corrupted by these horrible, bigoted parents. And Frank Chalk's point was like, no, actually, um, there's a natural tendency to be very violent. There's a natural Mm -hmm. tendency to be, uh, you know, all sorts of bad things. And in order to produce civilized kids, we need to educate them, to, to socialize them, to get these things out. Right, but and we and we know we know this. Um, we we, we our, our our culture is filled with various ways. For example, that we teach boys not not just boys, you can teach girls as well. Um, it tends to be boys because boys have a, a a strong urge to compete with each other physically, but girls girls do to to, to some extent. But you know, if, for for every for every for every boy who's for every professional male boxer. Um, the, the, for every 15 professional male boxers, there's one professional female boxer. Okay. So there is, there is a disproportionate, um, uh, weighting towards, towards males over females. Um, um, you know, what do we do with those young men? We, we, we give them a disciplined sport. Now, actually I'm starting to get my you know, doubts about boxing. Well, you've mentioned boxing earlier cause I used to do it. I loved it. Um, I think it might be too dangerous. Uh, I think it just might, it's long-term. It might not be the best, best thing, but the, the discipline in it is, is superb. And there, but there are plenty of other sports which don't have the same danger, um, which, which, which carry the same kind of um, elements of within group competition. And if you think about a lot of our sort of, uh, a lot of our um, uh, sort of cultural um, artifacts around these kinds of things, they, 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 they trace that progression, don't they? So think of something like the Karate Kid, which is quite a cheesy movie from the 80s, but it embodies. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> but no, it's, it's a, and have you seen the remake? The remake is, uh, goes into the tropes and uh, they've, they've done a beautiful job and they love the original source material. But the, the initial idea is you've, uh, you've, got, you've got a young man who doesn't have a father um, and, and he's looking for a surrogate father. Uh, and this is a pattern that Jung um, identified many, many years ago that boys will have a kind of secondary father and that secondary father will um will will essentially show them how to how to succeed in the tribe um while keeping within the rules of the tribe and that's mr miyagi and uh, the, the the young the, the young neophyte has a choice between um the uh, the guy played by martin cove i can't remember the the the, the uh, crease is it the character's name who runs the cobra kai you know he's all sort of um, kill your enemy um uh, you know, no mercy or that kind of thing and that's one line he could take um and mr miyagi is, is no it's, uh, it's 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 about discipline it's about self-defense it's about defeating your enemy but doing it with honor and that's within group conflict conflict and that's that's the moral um uh, quandary at the at the heart of the karate kid he has to make that decision which way is he going to go and he obviously he's the hero he goes the right way um but when, once you realize that you realize there's an awful lot of movies particularly martial arts movies uh, follow that trope of the young man making a decision as to what kind of 
uh, path he's going to go down. Is he going to go down a path of being a, a violent outsider who who kills and rapes and you know, uses his powers for evil, basically? Uh, or, you know, is with great power comes great responsibility. Is he going to be someone who uses his his skills within the tribe in a limited way? Um, they, they're used hierarchically and they're, they're, there's definitely aggression there, but it's, it's done within rules. Um, now, that's a basic decision that, 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 you know, boys can go down and they can go down a disciplined path or an undisciplined path. Saying that saying that boys are basically non-violent means that they will, by default, go down the other path. Uh, and I would I would suggest it's quite dangerous to do that. Uh, it's, it's it's dangerous not to give boys the option uh, of, of of a disciplined path for their uh, for their for their outlets, and then pretending that they're they're not violent. And I think a problem with that is that social psychologists tend to be pretty wussy. We tend to go, oh, <laughs> you know, it's all terrible socialism. Oh, all my stars and garters, and we get very frightened by it. But it's not all antisocial. Some of it's highly social. It's highly constitutive of society as long as it's it's properly geared and. Um, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Um, reined in, um, properly disciplined. Um, yeah. there's, there's, you know, it's it, it not it's not inherently a bad thing. It's a um, it's a bad thing when you start dehumanising your opponents. It's a bad thing when you start seeing your opponents as enemies. It's a bad thing when you start seeing people as not being people. Uh, but none of that's in, inherent to, um, uh, to to violence and aggression per se, as long as it's done with rules. And I think that's. I mean, that's maybe what your guy um, Chalk was 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 aiming at is the uh, we, we've got so hung up on racism. We, we, we've sort of fetishized racism as being as being some other root of all evil. Uh, whereas I mean, what, what is racism? Really? It's one version of dehumanizing people, isn't it? I mean, it's, mm. it's just one particularly egregious way uh, in which you see other people as not being fully human. Uh, and there are plenty of other ways of not seeing people as being fully human. Racism is just one. It's a bad one, but it's not the only one. And if it's the only one you ever think about, you're going to miss a lot of the other ones. And I think that we're in big danger of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, for most of our history as a species, anybody who is not a member of your tribe was yeah. was practically not human. I mean, the the stories that I've been told by some of my sort of in, indigenous friends and students here in in Canada of what was the norm, you know, before Europeans showed up in mm. in the Americas, and you know, they one of the craziest stories was this one uh, Mohawk friend of mine. He said, "Yeah, you know, before." Before the, the white man came to North America, we were constantly at battle with because uh, mm -hmm. the Mohawk basically, for a number of reasons, they were the, the part of the Iroquois uh, Confederacy, and they they had um, superior agricultural technology. They they knew a way to sort of grow corn with squash right. and beans, which gave them a food source that was bigger, more plentiful, and more reliable than pretty much mm -hmm. anybody else. And so they were just conquering in just a swath all the way up the northeast of North America. And that most of their technology was um, was figured out in Mexico, actually. But uh, it passed up. And so they, when the Europeans showed up in North America, they were in the process of basically conquering most of the northeast and right. they were saying, like in this this oral tradition, that they had a tradition of going after the harvest had all been collected, and they had like their storehouses of of grain and stuff like that were all mm. set, and they were sort of getting down and preparing for the long winter. They would go just for leisure and sport. They would go up the Ottawa River and hunt Cree. 
Right. They would see hunt the Cree Indians like like you would go deer hunting. Right. Or, or only not, because it wasn't even for food. It was just for fun. Like yeah. they would go in right. hunting parties up like you would go and hunt bear or you know wolves not because you not because you want their territory not because it's for yeah. food or or anything it's just for recreation yeah so like that's you know that, when i really hear interesting. when i hear stories like that that's you know i don't i don't hear a story like that and think that somehow the the mohawk are especially you know brutal i think that's pretty much all humans up until yeah. fucking yesterday, like like that's. Well, I mean, it's, it's still it still it still happens. I mean, what what you're just. I mean, one of the things that happens when you go into hunting mode is you take trophies, and I think one of the things that 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 shocks a lot of humans when they they suddenly see um see how humans behave in modern warfare is the trophy taking. Yeah, you know, and uh, this this happened during this. My father my father fought in the Second World War. He was part of the fleet air arm. They sank, sank his ship, and so he was uh, fighting alongside the Americans uh, in the Pacific. Um, theater of conflict and one of the things that happened there was that they were sent the they were sending back so many japanese skulls uh, that they had to have various edicts about stopping you doing it I and mean, if you you can google this if you if you if you like wow. it's, it's on there's a cover of Time magazine. So Google Time magazine, and uh, I think if you just put in the words "secretary" and "skull," and this isn't this isn't hidden at all. There's there's a woman sitting there somewhere in the 1940s. Um, she's part of the War Office in America. I don't know what it was called back then. And she's got a skull on her desk, which is an ashtray, and she's just contemplating it. And they put it on the cover of Time because it was happening so much. Um, there are there are just huge sort of piles of corpses with with, with no heads there. And it wasn't that the Americans were particularly prone to it, but I think what's what's shocking to a lot of people. Um, is just how quickly humans go into that mode. Um, you know, they do things like they take pictures um, of, uh, of brutalizing troops, don't they? That's a kind of like a modern trophy. It's, mm-hmm. it's essentially the same thing. But you're, you're, you are, you're dehumanizing your opponent. I've got pictures of, um, uh, of, of some British troops in Borneo in the 1940s encouraging the Dyaks to go back to headhunting. But it didn't take too long before some of those British troops took to cannibalism again. And it wasn't because of appetite. It was just kind of yeah, that's 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 what you do when you dehumanize people. You start seeing them in a very different way, and I don't. I think it's very dangerous. I think people who aren't in touch with this dark side of human nature um, are, are quite dangerous potentially. Because even if they're not capable of seeing it in themselves when they start going down that route, and I think that's a danger, they're 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 very willing to deny it in others when others go down that route. Yeah, um, I think you're. I, I think you're I think, completely right. I mean that that's basically the message. Although it's often sort of glided over, that that's the message of Joseph Conrad's uh, short yeah. story, Heart of Darkness, right? Like right. It, Kurtz, exactly, yeah. Kurtz, the person who becomes the most monstrous person. It, it's very important to realize that at the beginning of the short story, Kurtz was basically what we would call a social justice warrior in London. He's right. a <laughs> he's a vegetarian. He's pushing for like rights of everything. He's a he's yeah. an enlightened progressive reformer type guy in london he is the one who becomes most fucking insane in the wartime situation and he he's the one who becomes like a total bloodthirsty cannibal crazy person and it's because he's so i mean joseph conrad's uh he he wasn't just pulling this out of his ass he had a lot of actual experience with some very very violent realities in in the colonies uh but he it's it's precisely because he's so out of touch with his own violence and his own capacity for for nastiness that yeah. he can become most nasty. 
which is which is one of the things that discipline is for, of course. I mean, that's what things like codes of ethics and self-discipline and moral codes. That's one of the things that they're all about. It's not just about doing the right thing. It's although it is about those things. It's about understanding yourself uh, as much as anything. Um, and one of the things I suppose I find a bit depressing about uh, some of the sort of the way m- morality is discussed these days is is the shallowness of it. I mean, just discussing things in terms of identity politics is it. I sort of look at it and you go, how is this helping someone understand themselves? Saying that they are, they're, they're nothing more than the sum total of some fairly superficial things like the color of their skin or their sexuality. Is that really taking them, you know, to the, to the root of what makes them tick? Because if, if it is, we're in, we're in big trouble. Um, and I, I, I don't think I don't think it's helping people understand themselves. I don't think it's helping them uh, answer the kind of moral questions they want to answer. I and mean, if, if if young people are asking moral questions, they're typically asking how should I live, and giving them a set of, of rules and prescriptions about how to avoid being racist, how to avoid being sexist, is just skirting the surface. Um, I, you know, it's not it's not going to it's not going to be sustain it's not it's not going to sustain their souls. I suppose which, which is going to sound like a funny way of me talking, but yeah. I think you know what I'm. No, I know what you mean. I, and I actually think this is one of the things that is most salvageable about uh, Freud is that Freudian psychoanalysis, much like uh, sort of Augustinian Christianity, um, mm-hmm. I would say to some extent um, the the sort of mainstream Sunni Islam, I would say mm-hmm. uh, pretty much all okay. Judaism, all of these systems, what they have in common is a very dark view of human nature. Right. They think we're right. basically fucking assholes and that we need right. a lot of civilization and we need a lot of it takes a lot of work to make us nice, to make us mm-hmm. to make us, you know, presentable and able to live in peace with each other. And I yeah. think that's that's actually a very good, you know, sort of John Gray's starting point, right? Like that's that right. kind of tragic view of human uh-huh. nature is such a a better place to start from, right? Yes. You know, rather than which what we do now, which is that we start from this position, at least uh, sort of people that are heavily influenced by say, romanticism and in, enlightenment, the this idea that we're all just wonderful and that if we're not, it's because something went wrong, right? Our parents yeah. were, were mean to us or we violent video games or movies or TV or you know the, yeah. the sort of patriarchy or a racist society or you know some something made us bad if if you start from the position that we kind of suck you know a lot yes. from the beginning and that we need to be civilized it, that seems like a more realistic and also at the same time uh, sort of a more you know humanitarian place to start from yeah i i mean it, it's it's certainly the case that um if you think, I mean, let, let's take things like a bad childhood. Though. A huge amount of the work that we do um, as a psychologist and second, I'm not. I, I want to stress, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychotherapist. I I work. Uh, I, I I train uh, psychologists and people who go on to do clinical stuff. I'm not myself a clinician. Okay, I don't. I don't try and mend people. I I try and study what makes them sick. Um, and one of the key things would be something like early trauma. Um, it is probably one of the best predictors of downstream stuff that the rest of society then has, has to then deal with, you know, in terms of either depression on individual level, drug abuse, violence, and all kinds of things. Um, so in that sense, you know, the, those sort of early things um, uh, are very important. But I think what, what often people don't realize is that 
the reason that that is the case is because humans in common with so many other organisms, uh, particularly all other mammals, anything that requires uh, parental input are, are a subject to life history um, sort of mechanisms. So if you're, if, if you're, I mean, let's just take a really simple example, like, like, like um, mice, okay, or, or rats. If, the, if, a, if a young rat is groomed by, by his mother, by the dam, then there's a demethylation of the um, GR protein that grows a, a hypothalamus that makes him quite a laid back kind of social justice rat. Uh, he's not really going to trouble. Um, but that does also mean that he, he's treating the world as a world of, of opportunity rather than as a one of threat. He'll live longer. He'll be less stressed. But that probably means that if he does get into a dangerous environment, he'll get he'll get walloped by a cat. Um, whereas on the other hand, if she doesn't do a lot of grooming, then the, the, the GR protein stays, stays tightly coiled. His hypothalamus doesn't grow in quite the same way. And he's a kind of a mean spirited, gumpy rat, you know, who will go down a fast life history path. Um, he's uh, he's more aggressive. He won't grow as big. Um, and uh, he sees the world as a world of threat. And it's tempting to see the, the the second type as being bad parenting but that's a mistake because what what the what the parent is doing is she's calibrating that rat for his most likely um, parameters of the kind of environment he's going to find himself in he's either going to be in a world largely of threat or largely of opportunity now that's the same with humans okay it's slightly more complicated but it's basically the same sort of mechanisms and we're, we, we've got a whole bunch of humans who are calibrated for a world of threat who are then dropped into the world of the rest of us and then we have to you know then then deal with it but that does of course immediately imply that those mechanisms for coping with a world of threat are there they're part of us they're not they're not downloaded into us okay the um the 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 software comes preloaded you know and it's, it just requires activation by the by the user does that, if that makes sense oh that makes perfect uh-huh. sense there was a i don't know there was a you may have seen it it was on i think it was on netflix they had a recent series very heartbreaking very upsetting uh it was a series on the uh the central park five which oh, is right. uh, these these black these young sort of black and Latino uh, guys who were teenagers who were falsely accused of um, raping this this white woman jogger in the 1980s and beating her almost to death. Uh, right, it, it was completely a lie. Like they were railroaded and all this stuff. Right. But anyway, one of the things the show represented, which I thought was exactly what you're talking about, is that. The, uh, this one young guy, he comes back, he's been in prison for a long time, and he's just so jumpy, and he's got a hair trigger, and yeah. the slightest kind of confrontation, and he just escalates with this right. like incredibly violent um, sort mm-hmm. of display. And it, you can see how like that was totally functional in the environment of a prison, sure. especially him being underage. He was, he was tried as an adult and put in an right. adult prison when he was 17. So he had to be just very, very violent and hypervigilant, but then mm-hmm. coming back and living in a house with kids and with his father's um, new wife, it was just yeah. not, a, it was really dysfunctional in that environment and made it yeah. very hard for him to sort of, um, fit in right yeah and so he ends up going into a life of crime and becoming like a gangbanger because his his sort of he's been calibrated for a world that is just not the civilized world of like yeah. of a people yeah. which is a problem but but clearly we have those capacities and they can be brought online rather rapidly yes. right yeah um, and 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 we and one of the one of the ways you can do it, particularly with men, 
um, is to tell them they've been humiliated. Uh, status is, is a key thing for males because status over time has been something that's that's co-varied with, with reproductive success. Um, males develop a kind of an anger flash, um, you know, that sort of rapid, um, oh my God, I've been disrespected, that kind of thing. Um, now, I'm not saying these things are beyond their control, but they're, they're, they're there and they need to be... Um, they need to be corrected for and if you if you don't or if you've got somebody coming in and incredibly irresponsibly telling a group of young men that they've all been humiliated or that their race has been humiliated or that their nation has been humiliated you are you are going to breed a bunch of people who could be potentially very dangerous yeah. um, because the thing about humiliation is you is you are you erase that humiliation you erase the people that do it and we we, we, we there was a thing called amok uh, we used to think that AMOC was a uh, was a culture-bound syndrome. When I was studying my master's degree years and years ago, AMOC was de- was described as a culture-bound syndrome, where nobody quite knew what was happening. Was it the heat? Was it the culture? Um, young men, uh, typically in the Far East, would for some reason go go um, off the rails one day, attack people with one of these big wavy knives called a crease. Sometimes they throw grenades. It's totally innocent uh, strangers, typically. What was happening? Well, I mean, it looks an off, and, and it turns out when you start delving into it, you know, they'd, they'd had some episode of sudden status loss. Um, they, they, they never had girlfriends, you know, the guys, um, um, you know, who are, who are committing amok. Um, they, they'd had a sudden kind of... So this um, is where uh, the expression running amok comes from? Amok comes from, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, wow. And, and then once you realize that, you, you, you realize that they have a heck of a lot in common with school shooters. Yep. Uh, yeah. And there's and there's various kinds of levels in which in which a young man might be humiliated. You know, it might be uh, might be to do with school, might be to do with girlfriends, might be to do online, might be might be because some irresponsible person is standing up and telling them that they're 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 being invaded and their their race is being swamped by others or you know other other things of that of that kidney. But there are going to be some people uh, who are pushed over the line by that kind of stuff, and yeah. we really ought to be careful. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I've up. I've grown up I've grown up bathed in that stuff here in Quebec because yeah. you have um, on the one hand I've grown up with uh, you know a lot of kind of Quebecois like nationalists who are constantly they're you know on the radio on the TV like yeah. in the bars all the time they talk about we are being humiliated by English Canada. Look at how they look down on you. Look at how they're humiliating us. Ever since, you know, the British conquest, they have just been humiliating us and they whip people into like a frenzy, right? Yeah. And then on the other side, you have these kind of like Anglo rights uh, activists here in Quebec mm-hmm. who sort of take it upon themselves to to stand for the, the English minority in Quebec and they say, we are being humiliated they oh, are like, and and both of them. I I'm so used to this. I'm I'm so <laughs> used to this since I was right. a little kid. And so when I hear people playing this game, and I see them doing it online, I, I know how this game works, and I know right. how it ends. Right? It's like right. Talk, it's like talking to somebody who grew up in like in Dublin, or you know, like in Belfast. They know yeah. perfectly well whether they're Protestant or Catholic. They know how this fucking game works, and they know how it ends. It ends in mm-hmm. violence. It ends in crying. It ends in sadness. It ends in. It's just. It's such a like a toxic trap. But you know, as you say, it's it's very attractive. You know, it, and we've had surgeons in my country. We've had this sudden kind of. Um, we we all thought English nationalism had gone away, but um, how wrong we were. <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of this, as it turns out, you know, we've we found out a lot of it is 
is these these Russian troll farms, right? And like they, we hear a lot in the sort of international news about how much they messed with the uh, American um, election, yeah. but they also messed with the UK uh, Brexit. Like they messed with yeah. in the UK a lot. They've in Canada, they've been very active. In France, they've been trying, and in Canada, oh. they have set up all these fake sites where they are suddenly kind of like. Uh, like let's say out of the province of Alberta saying we are constantly being humiliated by the rest of Canada and we should separate from Canada. Then they set up French sites in Quebec saying we are being humiliated by Canada. We should separate from Canada. They were doing in the States, they were setting up Texas separatism groups. They were setting up LGBTQ separatist sites. Like their message you know, is different in different places, but it's always appealing to this reflex you're talking about. Yeah. And, I mean, and look how easily our brains get hacked by it too. You know, yeah. it really doesn't take much um, bef- before, particularly young men. Um, and I, I mean, and at this point, I, I, I want to say that I think as the older generation, we have to some extent let them down. If the, if the young men aren't equipped with mechanisms for dealing with those kinds of feelings, um, because that's one of the things that, um, I mean, I was mentioning martial arts because that's, kind of my background but it's not just that i mean there's there's mental disciplines and physical disciplines and emotional disciplines but it's one of the things that the older generation is meant to do with the younger generation is give them some degree of control over these kind of things and awareness of these kinds of things yeah and i don't think we've done a terribly good job sometimes no that's completely Um, true i mean i don't know if you've ever read the book elephants on the edge it's no it's a fascinating book where she draws all these parallels between violent young male elephants and child soldiers in africa and she says right. because poachers have killed off the um, the adults, the, the the bulls, the large males, and killed off the females, you have all these orphaned young male elephants who just rove around in yeah. these violent packs and they destroy human villages. They, I mean, I know this sounds completely insane, but look at it. Google it. It's yeah. real. Uh, they gang rape rhinoceroses um, the to, de- to death. These young, these male elephants, they gang rape. Wow. These park rangers were finding female rhinoceroses in parks in South Africa and other places that had were um, had been killed and crushed and raped to death, and their their Great. horns were still on and stuff like that. So they were like, "This yeah. is not poachers." And they yeah. gradually realized through various means through that it was these young roving bands of young males that yeah, were yeah. uh just and because the for the young males and so she she draws a lot of parallels to child soldiers and she yeah, says yeah. that uh it's incredibly important in in hyper social species like elephants and homo sapiens sapien that the older males serve a really important function in socializing yeah. the younger males right. and getting yeah. them, you know, Mr. Miyagi style, getting yeah, them yeah. to sort of tame their violent impulses and use yeah. them for pro-social, me- you know, means, right? So, absolutely, yeah, yeah. it's a, it's a I, absolutely, I mean, if you get the book, if you get the book, um, it, it's really good book. And, you know, a random fact, the guy who wrote the prologue to the book, Calvin Luther Martin is my uncle, actually. Okay. So uh, it's, it's a very it's good book. Elephants, elephants on the Edge. Elephants a, on the Edge. Yeah, yeah no, it's a very, good. very, very good. So we we've got to we've got to wrap it up. But uh, okay. thank you so much for coming on the podcast. 
And uh, we definitely have to do this again because we have so many other things we need to talk about. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, but this has been great fun. This has been great fun. Cool. Uh, well, I, I look forward to doing it again. And, and nice to finally hear your voice. Yeah, nice to hear oh, yours too. Cheers. All right. Have a wonderful day. And you. Take care. Take care. Bye.